So I'm just going to pray, God, thank you so much for all these wonderful people. So grateful that we're able to be gathered together this morning and sing your praises and hear your word. It's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. I just ask that you would come fill this place. Lord, you promised that you would fill the spaces where we are, where we're gathered as your people. So we're just counting on you this morning to show up, to be here with us. Let us feel your presence, God. Let us not move past this quickly. Let us not be in a rush. Let us not miss this opportunity to be refreshed by your spirit. In Acts chapter 2, it said that when the Holy Spirit came, Peter said that it was going to be the rivers of refreshing. I love that phrase because we need to be refreshed, God, so many times. I know I do this morning, God, so I just ask that you would come. Bring the rivers of refreshing, your Holy Spirit, God, to just strengthen us, to prepare us for the week ahead, but to take this moment, this Sabbath day, this day of rest and worship, to focus our eyes on you, to reorient ourselves, just to get our compass realigned with you, the true north. God, thank you for your faithfulness and that even when we are not faithful, you still are. So we just thank you for that this morning. And that is why we sing. Amen. You can stand if you're like, if you would like to, if you're able, um, or you can be seated, whatever feels right for you in the posture of worship. We're going to sing this morning about the joy of the Lord. So if you're not feeling joy this morning, just by faith, God, we declare that it's true. We believe your word and what you said, and we choose to rejoice in the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. These things that we're singing about this morning are true. They're from God's word, and we're going to declare them by faith if we have to. Amen? All right, let's do it. Praise, there's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this 
day and we won't be quiet we shout out your praise there's joy in the house of the lord our god is surely in this place and we won't be quiet different for our call to worship. You might be familiar with the Nicene Creed. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to read it with me. Um, feel free to follow along just in your heart and your mind. It's really long, so I'm not going to make us synchronize perfectly. But I just want to declare this. I was reading it in my theology class this week, and it really stood out to me. A call to worship is really just me declaring the truth of who God is for us so that we can be drawn, our hearts drawn into worship because we're in awe of who he is. When we declare his truth and we really meditate on that and think about how awesome he is, you can't help but worship him. So I just read this this week and thought, man, what better way than to declare really the works of God just in one beautiful creed. So I'm going to read that for us this morning. Just let these words um, just fill your heart and your mind as you think about the truth of what I'm talking about here. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, substantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead in his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and of the life of the world to come. Amen.
Amen. God is not reckless. We know that, right? But sometimes it seems that way. He's stubborn, and he won't give up. He's not giving up on you. He's not giving up on me. He's going to keep coming after us because he loves us. That's his love. That's what we're singing about this morning.
thousands on a daily basis. It's estimated that over two million refugees have made their way into Poland from Ukraine. And you can see that happening right here. And this is the first thing that they see. I want to show you, we have a lot of different tents here and humanitarian aid that's being handed out. Over here, we have different volunteers who are waiting on the sidelines to see whatever help they can support. Right now, we have Tiana over here. Hello. Tell us who you're with and what you've been doing. So we're with Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. Today, we're actually here waiting for friends to come across from Ukraine that we've known for almost 30 years. But normally, we're in Przemyśl at the train station, and we're trying to create safe spaces for kids and moms. So as they wait for the trains to come, uh, things to do with kids to make them smile, and also working on a project that will actually be able to match families with safe places to sleep for night because often when they come into Poland they have no idea where they're going where to sleep and they haven't slept for a day or two haven't had a shower and so we're just looking for ways to make safe spaces for people all right Tiana thank you so much for your time nice to meet you all right so we're going to continue walking here because I want to show you guys a little bit about what it looks like when you're just
Thank you, Stu, for finding that. I think he just kind of stumbled upon that and recognized that name and that face and her connection with not only our church, but the Nazarene church as a denomination. And so um, I just found that as he shared that with me, I found that to just be a, a real reminder that while many of us, as we sit here on a Sunday morning, worshiping freely, and we'll leave this place, and we'll go do whatever we want to do in the safety and comfort of our home or in our communities, and that's just such a real personal reminder that so many people in the world do not have that pleasure or privilege today, and that not only does it affect hundreds and thousands of names and faces and families and homes, but it affects people that you and I know people that are connected to our church and to our global church, the Church of the Nazarene. And so, friends, I just want that to be a real reminder to you that we are only a month into this thing. It feels like a lifetime, and for those that are directly involved, I can't even imagine. But don't, don't stop praying. Don't stop thinking about those who this affects every single day. Don't forget those who are serving tirelessly in the name of Jesus to make sure that when those refugees cross the border, that they have loving hands and faces to come to, right? So let us continue to be faithful as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, our brothers and sisters in Russia, and our brothers and sisters that are on the front lines of this that are working for the kingdom of God, risking their lives. So as we move into a corporate time of prayer, I just want to invite you, as, as I always do, find a, a posture that is comfortable for you. This is the time where the people of God can come together and know that we are praying as a corporate body, that we are praying together, that we're not alone right now. And we know that God's word says where two or three are gathered, that he is here with us. And so we can come together this morning and pray faithfully, trusting and knowing that God is listening, that God is working, that God is moving, that God is redeeming and restoring and healing, and he's not going to stop. So would you declare that with me this morning, church? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your spirit that is so present and palpable in this room. God, we thank you for these songs that were specifically chosen for a purpose. And when we come together, God, we are reminded that the purpose is that it's what we need to hear when we need to hear it. God, we believe that you are working in all, of, in all things, in all of the details, and God, we are reminded of that this morning, that in the midst of things that are going on in the world, all the way down to the things that are going on in our own individual lives, God, we recognize a need for you. God, we recognize that you are here that you are there, that you are moving, that you are working. And God, in the midst of all things, you are faithful and you are good. So God, we together this morning declare you are good. God, you are good and you love us. 
You love us, God. And some of us in this room just need to be reminded this morning just how loved they are. God, it is so easy to believe the lies of the enemy that tells us that we are unlovable, that we are unforgivable, that we are unredeemable, that everything is hopeless, that things are just going to continue to fall apart until there's nothing left. But God, we, we are here this morning boldly declaring that you will have the final say and that you are always working things for our good. God, help us to see that in our lives. Help us to see that in our world. And God, help us to step up and answer the call to be a part of the good things that you are doing. God, help us all in this room to remember this morning that yes, we are, are praying for you to continue to be present and active and moving and working, but God, also that you call us to participate. And God, we thank you. We thank you for the faithful ones like Jay and Tiana Sumberg who say yes on days where that is just unbearable. God, we thank you for the hundreds and thousands of people that Jay and Tiana represent this morning. And God, we just pray that your goodness and that your grace and your faithfulness and your strength would sustain them on the hardest, darkest of days. God, they need us to faithfully remember them. And so we remember them this morning. God, we remember those who are hurting God, we think about the ways in our lives, the ways that, that we are desperate to see you move. God, I am confident that there are many in this room this morning that are desperate for you, desperate to see you salvage and, and redeem and restore what seems hopelessly lost and broken. So God, this morning we boldly approach your throne and we ask you to do the impossible. God, we ask you to move the immovable. God, would you show us how you are calling us to participate, to respond. God, would you wake us up? Would you speak to us? God, help us to be open. Help our hearts to be softened. God, help us to, to listen and to hear what you want to say to us today. And God, would you help us to be obedient God, would you make this message personal for each and every person in this room today? God, it feels overwhelmingly heavy to bring such a complex message 
today, and I just am desperate for you, God, to speak. And I'm desperate, God, for you to take these words and make them your words that are for your people that are here today. And God, we continue to wait. We remain faithful. And God, we love you. And we thank you for loving us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we are uh, in the fourth Sunday of the season of Lent. It seems to be flying by, but here we are again. We, we pause in the midst of the busy. I hope that throughout the season of Lent, you've been able to carve out some time to slow down and to just be intentionally open and, and ready to hear and to receive from God. I hope you've carved out time, but just in case you haven't been able to do that, that's okay, I see you. And I hope that you can slow down and pause and, and open yourselves up in this moment to what the Lord wants to say to us. See, during the season of Lent, let me just remind you what we're doing. We're not just showing up and going through the motions, but we are journeying with Jesus. We are on a journey with Jesus toward the cross. And we are reminding ourselves of what it means to be kingdom people who journey and walk with Jesus. We are remembering during this season what it means to die to self so that we can find full and whole and complete and abundant life in King Jesus, who is already victorious, who is already reigning on his throne. During this season of Lent, we make time to withdraw. We make time to deny self, and we make time to remove distractions and pleasures, making space for God to speak and move in our lives. We make time to examine, to to pause and to look inward and say, Lord, search me, search me, oh God, and show me what it is I need to see. Show me how I might need to repent. Show me how I might need to turn in another direction and walk in a completely different way. And then we do it. We do it. We respond and we, obe- we respond in obedience. So during this, ser- this series, we have been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's been challenging because as you know, and and if you didn't really know before, you are aware now that the Sermon on the Mount is countercultural to what we know as normal, right? The Sermon on the Mount takes things that are normal for us and kind of flips those things upside down. And Jesus, in this moment in scripture, has gathered a group of people. You're familiar with these people by now, aren't you? He's gathered this group of people and he's showing them what it looks like to be his people. He's gathered all different kinds of people from all different walks of life and he's essentially looking at them just looking at them, meeting them where they are, speaking to their hearts, saying, this is what it looks like to be in my kingdom. 
And not only was that radical for the group that was there in that moment, but it is also radical for us. But I don't want us to to get so focused on just those who were there. It's important to know their context and their story and where they were at, but I also want us to know this morning that I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is present in this place and he is looking at his church. He's looking at us at BFCN and he's saying, this is what it looks like to be my people. This is what it looks like to dwell and live in the kingdom of God. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand. And I want to challenge you this morning. This is a new challenge for you, okay? I want to challenge you to memorize the the passage that we're going to read this morning. Are you up for that? Do you think you're up for memorizing this passage that we're going to read this morning? Because I think you can do it. I really do believe in you guys. Our passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5. Verse 48, and Jesus, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, looks out and he says to his followers, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, I just did it. I I said that to you without reading it. You can do that. Friends, this is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I debated on whether or not to actually have you stand for that very short reading, but I thought, nope, this is still the word of the Lord, even though the part that we're reading is short, and um, we are thankful for it, right? (laughs) Are you thankful for that word? You can tell me later how thankful you are for that word, uh, just being open to what's coming next. Yes, this is a short passage that we just read together this morning, but this is the summation of, of a long Um, list of things that Jesus has just sorted through with his followers. This is a short passage, but I wonder if a lot of you didn't hear anything past the word perfect. I wonder if a lot of you heard the word perfect and you thought, whoa, you lost me. Because I think that's what we do. When we hear that word perfect, we think about all the ways that we've already failed, right? Uh, All I'm thinking of now is all the ways that I am not perfect, that I'm not even close to perfect. I'm already anticipating how I'm going to mess it up again. And I'm already closed off to this idea of being any kind of perfect because I know just how difficult and really impossible that is. And I hear you. I hear you, but I think when we read Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, we read it in the way that we just read it. By itself, right? I think we really easily can, can look at that verse. Maybe it pops up on your Bible app and there's a really pretty image behind it, but all you're looking at is that glaring word, perfect. And you just wonder, Jesus, what are you talking about? And if you read that verse in that context, just isolating it, reading it by itself, then yeah, that's going to be pretty stinking challenging, and overwhelming, and you're probably going to be completely closed off as to how we go about this Christian perfection, as it's often called. So I want to encourage you this morning to back up. Let's back up together. Let's zoom out, and let's pay attention and understand this sentence, this one verse, in its proper context. And as we do that, here's what I don't want you to miss this morning. It's on the screen, so you know it's important. 
that perfection is less about what you are doing and it's more about whom we are loving. That's what you need to know first and foremost. I want you to stay open and hear everything that I have to say, but I also want you to really soak up this sentence that perfection is less about what you're doing. Just stop with what you're doing and know that Jesus is challenging us in the way of whom we are loving. And we're about to break down what we call six antitheses. And these are statements that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's essentially taking something that the Jewish people understood, that his followers understood because they were familiar with the law, and he's helping them to understand these things in a different way. He's gonna, we're going to go through and you're going to see a pattern where Jesus says over and over again, you've heard this. And in in hearing this, this is what you're trying to do. And in doing this, this is what you're missing. And, and, And Jesus, in these moments, we need to understand that he is not against Scripture. He is not against what Scripture has said and what God has said. But he is against how these things are being interpreted and how they're being lived out. And what we're missing in the meantime. And I'm just going to get really real with you this morning. This is a hard word. This is six hard words. We're going to kind of talk about six things that are really difficult and challenging. And I would much rather be on the receiving end of these things. I'm just going to tell you. It's hard and it's difficult. And I'm going to ask you to do something that might feel really challenging as we make our way through. I'm going to ask you, be open Don't hear me telling you these things. Be open to hearing from the Lord and understand that these things are going to confront you and they might even offend you a little bit. But that's what the gospel does sometimes, right? Scott McKnight, you know, I've leaned on him heavily um, as I prepare for this whole series. I I just appreciate and soak up each and every word he says, and and you probably feel like you're soaking up each and every word he says because I share so much of it with you. But I like how he properly calls these, um, each antithesis, he calls them an ethic from beyond. And if that sounds like really weighty and difficult, it's because it is. And, And he calls these things, this is an ethic from beyond. It's It's so challenging that it's going to feel impossible. But that's where you have to stay in it and hear Jesus out. Because here's what you need to know. Here's what what the original audience needed to understand. Everything has changed. The moment that Jesus stepped in, everything is different. Jesus has, has taken the impossible and he's made it possible. And he hasn't even given his Holy Spirit to these people yet. That's still to be come. That's still to come. That is still being anticipated. And you and I are already filled with that Holy Spirit. So you and I can already go into this hopeful, knowing that if Jesus calls us to do these things, that he's going to empower us and make it possible. And, and so everything has changed. And Jesus even acknowledges that before his, his audience those who are listening, and he says, listen, I'm not coming to throw out the law. I'm not coming to get rid of it. Don't mishear me. I have not come to abolish the law, but instead I am the fulfillment of this law. And because of that, you now understand these things in a different way. 
The story of Israel, which we haven't lost in this series, we've, we've probably paid more attention to the story of Israel than most of you are interested in, but, but it's an important story. It's part of the whole story of God as we've already established. That's important for us to know. And so the story of Israel is important, but it's being fulfilled in Jesus himself. And that's what the gospel is, right? It's Jesus' life, teaching, and actions completing all that was anticipated in the Old Testament, and nothing will ever be the same again. Jesus calls his followers, and he's calling you and I to live a different way, and he's going to empower us to do so. This is it. So one by one, Jesus, beginning with verse 21, he's going to unpack six parts of the law, and he's essentially saying, you think you're good because you're doing this, but here's what you're missing in the meantime. So let's start with antithesis number one, which you can find. We're not going to be able to read all of the scripture for each of these, but I encourage you to open it up and, and just kind of glance at it, be familiar with it, go back later But antithesis number one is found in verse 21 through 26. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And if you keep reading, Jesus goes on to really break down what he means by that and essentially says, if you even think something offensive or derogatory about your brother or sister, you're going to be judged for that as if you took their life. And we're not not taking away the importance of something like murder, right? We're We're not saying that that's not dangerous and that that's not important. But what Jesus is saying is you think you're good. In other words, the box that you're looking to check here is do not kill. Okay, well, most of us can probably check that box, so we're good, right? Jesus is saying the box that you're looking to check is do not kill, but in reducing this command that God gave to his people, in reducing this command to just don't kill, which don't, (laughs) let's not, right? It's not important. We're not even trying to really make light of it, but in only reducing this command down to do not kill, you are still in danger of broken relationships. And to God, that is just as serious because God's people are called to live in wholeness. They are called to live in peace, in shalom, reconciled to one another. And if we allow angry thoughts to to creep into our heart and we hold these thoughts against our brothers and sisters, we are in danger of being reconciled to God, to one another, and to the world. Think about it like this. How can you and I go out into the world and work for reconciliation when there's people, maybe even in this room, who are not reconciled to one another? How does that work? How does that work if the people of God are not reconciled to one another and we're supposed to go out into the world and be people of reconciliation? In reducing this command to just do not kill, we are failing to acknowledge how dangerous our words and our anger can be if it has room to grow in our hearts. Jesus even goes on to address this issue, kind of like I just alluded to, this issue of worshiping while we're at odds with brothers and sisters. 
And so imagine that if you and I come to church like we are here this morning and we are opening ourselves up to God and we are asking God to to speak to us, to move in our midst, to show us what we need to do, and yet here I am harboring resentment against my neighbor who's sitting next to me in church. How can I properly hear from God and do what he's calling me to do if, if that is broken, if my relationship with another believer is broken and damaged and hurting. Jesus knows this is going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem, and it's going to to hold you back. And so Jesus says, be reconciled to one another. This is important. And if you harbor up feelings of, of resentment and anger and say bad things about your brother or sister, there's going to be serious consequences. Jesus is concerned with this heart condition of of anger and bitterness and resentment that can, at its worst, yes, lead to murder. Absolutely. See, Jesus, in this moment, he calls us. The call, you remember what we reduced this down to, but the call is to live beyond anger and live in reconciled relationships with one another because we're called to be people of reconciliation. And we are in danger of destruction if we abandon this call. All right, well, you're already quiet, and that, to me, was one of the lighter, easier ones. So, (sighs) Holy Spirit, come. All right, antithesis number two, verses 27 through 30, Jesus says, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we're just going to acknowledge the elephant in the room that this begins a short section in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Antitheses, this uh, taboo subject that we just don't talk about in the church, right? And because we don't talk about this in the church, even though that should be the place where we absolutely talk about these things and we talk about what this looks like and in our small groups and in our discipleship relationships, we are talking about these things that exist and that are tearing people apart, but because we don't, the pastor has to get up and acknowledge it and it's super awkward because no one's having these conversations and it makes it really hard for us, right? But we're just calling it what it is. This is taboo. Things like sex and lust and adultery and divorce These are are taboo things in the church, and we don't know how to have conversations about these things because we aren't having these conversations at all. And church, that's a problem. It has to change because people are, are, are dying spiritually. Relationships are broken and dying, and that's happening whether or not we are talking about it. So how do we expect to get through and navigate through these things that are absolutely relevant when we aren't even willing to talk about it? We have to change the culture of talking about these things within the church. We can't afford not to. So the box that most of you are looking to check, Jesus, I think, is essentially saying is, don't cheat, don't sleep with another person's spouse, and yes, don't do those things. But in reducing this command to to simply not cheating, not sleeping with someone else's spouse, you are in danger of missing the really dangerous stuff that lurks in your heart. So if anger leads to murder, which at its worst can absolutely happen, then the lust that begins in our hearts 
can lead to full-blown adultery. And Jesus says, they're the same. They're the same. It doesn't matter what you do. It's about what's in your heart. What are you allowing to reign in your heart? What are you allowing to rule your thoughts and your actions? And if you reduce this command, you are missing and not dealing with what is absolutely lurking in our hearts. Jesus acknowledges that this is a heart issue, and we're acknowledging how what's here in our hearts is actually already destroying relationships. Even if it's not coming to to fruition, it's it's already destroying relationships because it's destroying your heart, it's destroying your spouse's heart, and it's also not loving your neighbor whom you're objectifying, right? Jesus is calling us to get rid of, not ignore, not shove down, not don't bring that up in the church because it's taboo and people are going to look at you awkward and people are going to judge you and people are going to think all kinds of things about you. That's a lie straight from the enemy. Jesus is saying, address what's in your heart, acknowledge it, put a name to it, and get rid of it. Eliminate what leads to adultery. Jesus, as Scott McKnight says, ramps up his rhetoric in order to force his followers to see the gravity and potential long-term danger of sexually intended staring. That rolls right into antithesis number three, verses 31 through 32. Again, taboo, tricky. This is tricky business in the church. You've heard it was said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And I just want to acknowledge this morning, I know, I know that divorce has touched a lot of people in this room. And this is not meant to open up wounds that you've already closed and and moved on from. This is not meant to, to cause anyone to feel unnecessary shame. But I also know that too many times we skip over this because it's hard, because it's messy, because it affects so many people, and we move past it and pretend like it's not there, and we are missing so much in doing so. Because Jesus is saying the box that you're looking to check is, Don't divorce your spouse unless you've done all of the necessary things with the law first, right? Unless you have gone through all the proper legal procedures, don't do it. But but Jesus calls us to something more. Jesus says what you're doing in reducing this command is that you're missing the danger of abandoning your covenant that you made before God to your spouse, And Jesus took this so seriously because the covenant between a husband and a wife is representative of the covenant between God and his people. And we see in scripture time and time again that God covenants to be with us and God covenants to be for us until full redemption, until we are in the fullness of the kingdom of God And that means that that divorce destroys this reflection of who God is, which is utterly and completely faithful. And Jesus is saying divorce was not and is not part of God's design. 
And what I need you to hear is that if you come to this passage looking for reasons to justify divorce, then you're missing the entire point of what Jesus is trying to say. That the call for God's people is to be completely and utterly faithful, to be with them, to be for them, and to be unto God's formative purposes for each of us. Antithesis number four. You have heard it was said, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. So the box we're looking to check is, don't break an oath, don't break a promise, and in doing so, in reducing this command, we are in danger of missing that the people of God should be known for their honesty and faithful and good and true intentions. This is not just about making or breaking promises. This is about being known as kingdom people. And kingdom people, it's assumed that we are going to be honest. It's assumed that we aren't going to mislead or or. We are not going to lead someone into believing something that's not true. We're not going to lie. We're not going to cheat. We're not going to steal. But as kingdom people, it's assumed that we are honest. This is kingdom living 101. We should be known for our honesty. And because kingdom people should be known for their honesty, known for their faithful and true intentions, that means Understand that the world is looking at you and assuming that you are good and honest and faithful. Don't break that. Don't break that trust. Don't do something that you know you shouldn't do to mislead or misguide someone. Jesus is saying as kingdom people, there's no need for oaths because the world is going to see you and they're going to know that you're honest because that's who kingdom people are. To the point where sometimes, you know, like there's been random moments in my life where, where like in the thick of parenting and, and early motherhood, when I was carrying the car seat and had the toddler in hand, and I would leave Target and I would go and unload all my stuff into my trunk and I would see that one thing that somehow I didn't check out with, but there it is in my cart. And so I, I'm, I have like this dilemma of like, do I just leave it in the cart and not take it home, obviously? Or do I get all the kids back out? It was only two, but it felt like enough to say all the kids. Get them back out of the car and go back into Target and say, hey, I, I missed this, sorry. Sometimes we kind of abandon the simple honesty because we think it's going to be silly. And we think the world's going to be like, really? You had to go that much out of your way just to be honest? But I think that Jesus would say yes. Yes, because that's who you are. And it might be silly to the world because the world operates in such a way that even simple honesty can feel strange. And yet, that's the way of God's people. It's what we're known for. That's who we are. Antithesis number five. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. The box that you're looking to check is don't harm someone unless they harm you first. Show no mercy if they are evil. And I'm just going to tell you that this is where I think it it gets increasingly difficult. Not because the other things aren't difficult. They are. 
My whole body is telling me they are. They're difficult, right? They are difficult, but this is where those things are kind of understood and assumed as kingdom people. And even though these are two on the same level, for whatever reason, these next two things are the things that get special attention. And we almost have like this make-believe special permission to do things differently because that's just normal. And so I find that this is where it gets increasingly difficult and challenging because what Jesus is basically saying is if someone hits you, don't hit them back. Turn the other cheek. We've said that all our lives, and yet do we understand how absurd that sounds? Really, that is completely countercultural and not normal. Jesus is essentially saying if someone wants something from you and you don't want to give it to them, put it in a gift box and hand deliver it to them. That's essentially what he's saying. And yet we respond to these things very, very differently. Jesus is saying in all situations, all, in all situations, instead of retribution, you as kingdom people are to offer grace and love, and forgiveness, and that's all. That is an ethic from beyond. It's like Buzz Lightyear out of this world crazy (laughs) because the world does not operate in this way. The church, most of the time, not, not making a blanket statement for everyone, we don't operate this way. We certainly don't talk like we operate this way. And I'm afraid it doesn't get any better. Jesus saved the best. And if we mean by best, the most difficult for last, he absolutely did. And what he says next, you have to imagine, just completely boggles the mind of his audience. Antithesis number six, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the box we're looking to check here is, don't come at me and I'm not going to come at you. Don't offend me and I won't offend you. Something along those lines. But can I just ask, like, where is that line anymore? Because I feel like that line is so blurred and and I don't even know, like, do you even know where that line is? Like, who said what first? Because now we're just all saying everything particularly on social media, and it's like that, that's so far behind us. That line is so far behind us that we can't even see it anymore. And maybe some of you at first glance or as you first hear this, you're like, well, I'm good. I don't have any enemies. I'm friends with everyone. I like everyone. I like to keep peace with everyone. I just don't have enemies. But you do. We all do. Scott McKnight. He nails this one. I had to share it with you. I couldn't leave it out. He says, we've all got enemies, and I want to suggest that America's enemy is the Muslim countries, and Christians have joined in. Evangelicalism's enemy is the mainline Protestant liberals and Roman Catholics. The enemy of the white person is the black person, and the enemy of the black person is the brown person. The enemy of the Christian Democrat is the Republican, and the enemy of the Christian Republican is the Democrat. They both exist. You need to know that. They both exist. The enemy of the morally conservative Christian is the homosexual, 
And I'm not even beginning to touch on particular enemies, the people you see daily, bump into on the street corners, in your community, and see as you drive through your neighborhood, but those are enemies too. Church, what Jesus is calling us to is to give our best, not just to those who love us and who give their best to us, but this includes your enemies. And I would say, Jesus would say, I feel confident that Jesus would say, even especially your enemies, since they are the ones who prove to be the most challenging and they need it more than anyone. There's something here for everyone, isn't there? <laughs> Are you catching on yet just how confrontational the Sermon on the Mount material really is? When you slow down to look at it in depth in its proper context and in our context, are you offended yet? Are you feeling confronted yet? Are you aware of, of just how, I'm not just saying radically countercultural because it's a cool word that pastors like to use now, but because it's the truth. It's absolutely what this is. Do you understand and recognize why we refrain from touching it? Because it's problematic. It's dangerous. I'm sure someone's going to leave offended today. I've already accepted it. My Enneagram type nine has already accepted it. But most importantly, I really have, I'm not trying to just joke to, to make it light, I have prayed about it, but I know that somebody will probably leave offended because that's what the gospel is. It's confrontational and it offends people, both people within the church and those outside the church. It's confrontational because it will always be easy. Listen, the easy thing to do is to come up with a reason as to why someone doesn't deserve your love anymore. That's easy. I can come up with so many reasons as to why so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so are no longer deserving of my love and my faithfulness. The hard thing to do is acknowledge what we've been called to and to accept and understand that it's an ethic from beyond. It's not possible without the help and strength of Jesus Christ. So are we beginning to understand now, because it's at this point, we went through all of those hard, messy things, and it's at this point where Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you get it? You see? You see how intentional that is? Because I imagine that on the, on the heels of saying these things, that Jesus is looking out at those who are, are sitting on the side of this mountain who are glued to every word that he's saying and whose minds have just been blown because he's calling us to do what? We have to completely change everything we've done, everything we've been doing up until now. And I imagine Jesus looking at them, knowing that they're hanging on every last word and knowing that this guy isn't just talking, but he's empowering and he is filling and he is going to help them do these things. And I imagine that Jesus is looking at them saying, you are kingdom people now. And this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God and be kingdom people. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's extreme. Yes, it's going to be challenging. Yes, it's going to go against everything you think 
you feel, you know, you've been taught, it's going to frustrate Christians and non-Christians, yes, you will have to work at this. And yes, you're going to have to wake up every day and recommit your life to God and say, God, I'm going to love who you've called me to love no matter what, even when it's impossible, even when it's hard. But this is how kingdom people live. And this is what it means in this context to be marked by holiness and marked by a love of Christ This is what we are called to do. We are called to be marked by holiness and the love of Christ. And Jesus is saying, you can't properly love those who you're angry with. You can't properly love those who you're holding a grudge against. You can't properly love those whom you are objectifying You can't properly love those you are divorcing and leaving. You can't properly love those whom you are deceiving. You can't properly love those whom you are harming because they hurt you first. And you can't properly love those whose living offends you and you've decided to write them off as if they are beneath you and as if they are not human. On that note, I'm going to call the praise team to come back and stop me now. (laughs) It's in this context that, that verse 48 seems pretty intentional, right? As the Sermon on the Mount is about breaking legalistic laws and focusing on what's in the heart. It's not about what you're doing. It's not about what you're not doing. Throw that out. It's about loving who you've been called to love and willing to love them again and again and again, even when it feels impossible. It's still March, still Women's History Month, I guess. (laughs) And Mildred Winecoop Bangs, she had a profound influence not only on the Nazarene church, but as a holiness people in general, because there's other denominations that are considered holiness denominations. That's not just ours. And Mildred Winecoop Bangs, she had a, a profound impact on holiness denominations, and it's because of things like this. She said, love is the essential inner character of holiness, and holiness does not exist apart from love. She says, that is how close they are, and in a certain sense, they can be said to be the same thing. So in other words, we cannot be perfect as we've been called to be, as our Heavenly Father is perfect, without this kind of love. Without a love that stays. Without a love that doesn't give up on people. Without a love that forgives. Without a love that turns the other cheek And without a love that has no limits, without a love that just doesn't quit. Holiness and love. We are holiness people, amen? (laughs) And holiness and love are connected and cannot be separated. And here's what you need to know. As I have just laid a lot in front of you, I know. Ideally, each one of those things could have been their own sermon. I know. You don't have to tell me that later, but I know. I already know. I know that was a lot. But here's what you need to understand. That it's only because the goodness and faithfulness 
of God. It is only because of how good and faithful God has always been to us that we can understand what it means to go and love others in this way. You can't attempt to love others in this way until you've fully received the love of God that is free and available to you. It's already yours. God has been so faithful and so good to us, and he is the only one who can help us live out this call that we've been given. God, we are processing through a lot in this moment, and God, I trust and hope that you have have spoken a word to each one of us this morning, even though that word probably looks different for everyone. God, I pray that you would just show us what this looks like for us. Show us, God, that you didn't just call us to, to be something impossible. You didn't just call us to live in a way that wouldn't be possible. But Jesus, you came and you demonstrated what this looks like. And in every single way, you lived out each and every one of these things until the very end. And because, Jesus, because you laid your life down out of love for us, even though we were unfaithful, even though we crucified you, even though we turned away from you time and time again, Jesus, it's because of of your love that you laid down your life and it's because of God's power that is in you that you were raised from the dead and that you reign victorious and that you empower us to live in this way. So God, in the midst of this Lenten season, we pause this morning. We reflect and we examine. We have all fallen short of one or all of these things. Not a single person in this room is is without blame. Not a single person in this room has nailed every one of these things that prove to be challenging and difficult and, dare we say, seemingly impossible. But God, in the midst of this season, we pause, we examine, we confess, we repent. We lay down our obsession with perfect actions and we pick up our call to love, love recklessly, love in a way that the world says, that's just crazy. God, may we truly find perfection in this way, in the way of you, Heavenly Father, that is perfect. Speak to us, Lord. Amen. Altars are open. Stay seated. Whatever feels comfortable to you in this moment.
Amen. You may be seated. I want you to know two things this morning on the heels of that message. The first one is that I don't have it all figured out, and I don't ever want to stand here and preach something that makes you think for a second that I follow all of this perfectly, have always followed all this perfectly, and have it all figured out, because I don't. Just want you to know that. I preach from a, a place of desperation as I look at my life and realize that it does not. I look at my life and I look at Jesus and I just, Lord, there are so many differences. How, like, but that's what examination is. It's looking at your life and looking at Jesus' life, confessing the differences and being willing to allow him to take what's different and to make it look like him. And the second thing I want you to know is a message like this, really no message, but especially a message like this is not meant to be heard and meant to just be digested and never thought of or spoken of again. Like I've just declared the truth and that's it and there's nothing else to say. Like, you should go and find somebody to process these things with out loud because that's what it looks like to be a community. That's what it looks like to live in community and in relationship and in discipleship with one another. It's taking these hard words that feel impossible and say, what does this look like? Our favorite phrase, right? What does this look like? But really, God, help us to see what this looks like for us. Amen? Amen. All right. Shifting gears. Here's some things that are going on in the life of the church that we want you to know about, that we want you to write down, to put on your calendar so that you will remember and that you'll be prepared for these things. Um, this morning, we want to let you know that on Easter Sunday, we would like to have a, a continental brunch or breakfast is what we're calling it. Um, continental just meaning that we're not looking to serve a big meal, like a full course meal, but we're just wanting little breakfast snacks that you could just pick up and, and eat. And, and as you're fellowshipping out in the foyer, you can just pick up some, some breakfast foods, items, and coffee, and just share and fellowship in a light breakfast with one another. Uh, that's what we would like to do on Easter morning. And so um, Judy Hand and Janet Reinhardt have graciously volunteered to kind of lead the efforts and make sure that we have enough food and, and make sure we know who's bringing what. And so if you would like to bring something for that continental breakfast, would you let them know? I saw a sign-up sheet out in the foyer, so you could just sign up on that sheet. Um, I don't see Judy here today, right? Okay, and, and Janet's here if you have any questions, but um, just let us know if you'd like to bring something for that. Also, we want to let you know that there won't be Sunday school on Easter Sunday, and that the time on this breakfast, you'll notice, is 9 to 10. And there's a lot of reasons for that timing. The, the service time is still the same, still 10.30 start time for service, but we chose 9 to 10 for a few reasons, one being that we're going to have the worship team practicing at some point during that time, and so we want them to have plenty of time to still be a part of the fellowship 
leadership. Uh, and so we just wanted to allow plenty of time for that. And also, the ladies and those who are going to be helping clean up, they're going to have probably lunches at home to be preparing for and getting ready for. Maybe not all of them. I will not. I'll just tell you that right now. But but a lot of them will be. And so we want to make it to where the, the cleanup time is not rushed and, and crazy and thrown all on one person so that after church is over, we can leave and no one has to worry about that. So that time frame gives us the, the flexibility to kind of accommodate all those different people and things, okay? Also on Easter Sunday, we do plan to have an egg hunt for the kids that come. Any kids that, uh, that come to, to Easter Sunday church, uh, we're going to have an egg hunt for them. And so we will be collecting candy for that. You'll see a box out in the foyer where you can drop off that candy. Was that correct, Karen? A thousand pieces of candy? Okay, all right, a thousand pieces. The boss was given a boss, and the boss says a thousand pieces of candy is what we're wanting. So if you would bring some um, individually wrapped candies, don't just bring a bag of M&Ms because those will probably just go home with somebody and not in the eggs because it's chocolate and it's not individually wrapped. So it breaks both rules. It It can't be chocolate. It needs to be individually wrapped. That way we're not having a mess on our hands, right? So if you would bring those candies, you can drop them off in the foyer. We'll be collecting those until um, April 10th, and if you have any questions, see the real boss, and that is Dawn. <laughs> so she's the boss, you do what she says, and, and there you go, okay? Um, we will also be having a Good Friday service on Friday, April 15th at 7 p.m., so we want to make sure that you have that on your calendar if you're able to join us. On Easter Sunday, we're also going to be um, collecting or receiving an offering for World Evangelism Fund. So we have two pushes throughout the year where we're really trying to meet that goal. Okay, remind me, $3,000? Okay, that's our goal that, that we have left to, to kind of close that gap is $3,000 to meet our World Evangelism Fund goal. And so on Easter Sunday, you will have the opportunity uh, to give the offering that's going to go toward that $3,000 goal so that we can meet that, um, that goal and that budget for this year. And then finally, just a little uh, programming note is that we are slowly working our way to getting a a ministry going again for students, for preteens and teenagers. And so kind of the first step in that is going to be um, having a preteen group meet and then having a teen group meet. So preteen's going to be fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, and the teen group's going to be seventh through twelfth graders. Um, Bo, Pastor Bo is actually going to be meeting with the teens, and I will be hanging with the preteens, and we're just going to have a Bible study and a time of kind of vision casting of what do you want your youth group to look like? And so um, we're going to be doing that on Sunday, April 3rd, and that's going to be downstairs at 5.30 p.m. Um, and, and I just want you, you know, there's not going to be like an exact time that we're meeting every week at this point because we're just kind of working out what, um, what everyone's schedules can handle. So bear with us as that's not like a concrete schedule yet, but we're just taking those steps to getting that going again. So if you have anyone in your families or know anyone that's looking to be a part of, of, a, of a teen or a preteen ministry, um, we want to provide that for them, okay? So also be praying for that. Would you be praying for that? And, and if you just have an overwhelming desire to hang out with teenagers and preteens and minister to them and love them uh, through all the fun phases of their life, would you let me know? <laughs> because I have a role for you and, and a place where you can help, right? Not asking anyone to take control of that, but we definitely have a place where you can help, so... With that being said, I would like to invite you all to stand. 12 o'clock on the dot. Wow. All right. Brothers and sisters in Christ, 
you are loved. And may you go in the grace and peace and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may you be holy and be loved to the world around you this week. You are dismissed. Have a great day.